Hello, you're listening to the Bible Podcast. Today is May 18th, and we're beginning the second book of Chronicles. Today we read chapters 1 through 5. Chronicles presents the period of David and Solomon as an ideal time when all of Israel united in worship at the temple. Concern for the correct worship of God dominates the account of David's reign. The restoration of the Ark to Jerusalem and David's military victories provided for the future temple. David made all the necessary arrangements for the appropriate officials as worship shifted from Gibeon to Jerusalem. To the chronicler, David's reign offered a paradigm for his own readers. David moved out of being a fugitive from Saul, basically a condition of exile, and into the functioning community of God. The post-exile community reading Chronicles had undergone a similar transition from exile and could anticipate similar blessings if they were obedient. The chronicler regards Solomon's reign as equal to David's because Solomon brought to fruition David's plan for the temple and its worship. In Chronicles, Solomon enjoys divine blessing and the total support of the people. David appoints Solomon to the throne in a public announcement, and Adonijah's attempted coup is entirely omitted. The chronicler does not mention Solomon's sins, and he shifts blame for the schism to Jeroboam. Solomon's wealth and international influence reflect his glorious, peaceful, and righteous reign. The division of Israel into northern and southern kingdoms shows the obvious failure of the kingdom to meet its ideals, but it does not mean that all hope for the kingdom was lost. Obedience still results in God's blessing, and disobedience will be punished. The chronicler provides a cause for judgment each time calamity occurs, and he also emphasizes the blessings that result from faithfulness. Repentance is always a means of averting, or at least moderating, a threatened judgment. Prophetic warnings are always issued before judgment falls, and the possibility of healing is always present. This pattern provides one of the primary ways that the chronicler communicates hope for the future in his own time. The chronicler, believed to be Ezra, has so connected the historical facts with the attitude of the kings and the people to the Lord and to his law that they teach how the Lord rewarded fidelity to his covenant with blessing and success, both to people and kingdom, but punished with calamity and judgments every faithless revolt from his covenant ordinances. The chronicler used his account of Israel's history to teach his readers to regulate their lives and community. He maintained hope for a historical restoration of the promise to David, however remote the possibility may have seemed in his time. The chronicler makes it clear that the kingdom of Israel was not a human institution subject to the whims of political expediency. It was God's kingdom, and God would ultimately make it a reality. Second Chronicles chapter 1 Solomon, son of David, took firm control of his kingdom, for the Lord his God was with him and made him very powerful. Solomon called together all the leaders of Israel, the generals and captains of the army, the judges and all the political and clan leaders. Then he led the entire assembly to the place of worship in Gibeon, for God's tabernacle was located there. This was the tabernacle that Moses, the Lord's servant, had made in the wilderness. David had already moved the ark of God from kiriath Jerem to the tent that he had prepared for it in Jerusalem. But the bronze altar made by Bezalel, son of Uri, and grandson of Hur, was there at Gibeon, in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. 
So Solomon and the people gathered in front of it to consult the Lord. There, in front of the tabernacle, Solomon went up to the bronze altar in the Lord's presence and sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings on it. That night God appeared to Solomon and said, What do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. Solomon replied to God, You showed faithful love to David, my father, and now you have made me king in this place. O Lord, please continue to keep your promise to David, my father, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me the wisdom and the knowledge to lead them properly, for who could possibly govern this great people of yours? God said to Solomon, Because your greatest desire is to help your people and you did not ask for wealth, riches, fame, or even the death of your enemies or a long life, but rather you asked for wisdom and knowledge to properly govern my people, I will certainly give you the wisdom and knowledge you have requested. But I will also give you wealth, riches, and fame, such as no other king has had before you or will ever have in the future. Then Solomon returned to Jerusalem from the tabernacle at the place of worship in Gibeon, and he reigned over Israel. Solomon built up a huge force of chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. He stationed some of them in the chariot cities and some near him in Jerusalem. The king made silver and gold as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone, and valuable cedar timber was as common as the sycamore fig trees that grow in the foothills of Judah. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Cilicia. The king's traders acquired them from Cilicia at the standard price. At that time, chariots from Egypt could be purchased for 600 pieces of silver and horses for 150 pieces of silver. They were then exported to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. Chapter 2 Solomon decided to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord and also a royal palace for himself. He enlisted a force of 70,000 laborers, 80,000 men to quarry stone in the hill country, and 3,600 foremen. Solomon also sent this message to King Haram at Tyre. Send me cedar logs as you did for my father David when he was building his palace. I am about to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord my God. It will be a place set apart to burn fragrant incense before him, to display the special sacrificial bread, and to sacrifice burnt offerings each morning and evening on the Sabbaths, at new moon celebrations, and at other appointed festivals of the Lord our God. He has commanded Israel to do these things forever. This must be a magnificent temple, because our God is greater than all other gods. But who can really build him a worthy home? Not even the highest heavens can contain him. So who am I to consider building a temple for him except as a place to burn sacrifices to him? So send me a master craftsman who can work with gold, silver, bronze, and iron, as well as with purple, scarlet, and blue cloth. He must be a skilled engraver who can work with the craftsmen of Judah and Jerusalem, who were selected by my father David. Also send me cedar, cypress, and red sandalwood logs from Lebanon, for I know that your men are without equal at cutting timber in Lebanon. I will send my men to help them. An immense amount of timber will be needed, for the temple I'm going to build will be very large and magnificent. In payment for your woodcutters, I will send 100,000 bushels of crushed wheat, 100,000 bushels of barley, 110,000 gallons of wine, and 110,000 gallons of olive oil. King Aram sent this letter of reply to Solomon. It is because the Lord loves his people that he has made you their king. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who made the heavens and the earth. 
He has given King David a wise son, gifted with skill and understanding, who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. I am sending you a master craftsman named Haram Abi, who is extremely talented. His mother is from the tribe of Dan in Israel, and his father is from Tyre. He is skillful at making things from gold, silver, bronze, and iron, and he also works with stone and wood. He can work with purple, blue, and scarlet cloth and fine linen. He is also an engraver and can follow any design given to him. He will work with your craftsmen and those appointed by my lord David, your father. Send along the wheat, barley, olive oil, and wine that my lord has mentioned, and we will cut whatever timber you need from the Lebanon mountains and will float the logs and rafts down the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa. From there, you can transport the logs up to Jerusalem. Solomon took a census of all foreigners in the land of Israel like the census his father had taken, and he counted 153,600. He assigned 70,000 of them as common laborers, and 80,000 as quarry workers in the hill country, and 3,600 as foremen. Chapter 3. So Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father. The temple was built on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, the site that David had selected. The construction began in mid-spring during the fourth year of Solomon's reign. These are the dimensions Solomon used for the foundation of the temple of God, using the old standard of measurement. It was 90 feet long and 30 feet wide. The entry room at the front of the temple was 30 feet wide, running across the entire width of the temple, and 30 feet high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. He paneled the main room of the temple with cypress wood, overlaid it with fine gold, and decorated it with carvings of palm trees and chains. He decorated the walls of the temple with beautiful jewels and with gold from the land of Parvaim. He overlaid the beams, thresholds, walls, and doors throughout the temple with gold, and he carved figures of cherubim on the walls. He made the most holy place 30 feet wide corresponding to the width of the temple and 30 feet deep. He overlaid its interior with 23 tons of fine gold. The gold nails that were used weighed 20 ounces each. He also overlaid the walls of the upper rooms with gold. He made two figures shaped like cherubim, overlaid them with gold, and placed them in the most holy place. The total wingspan of the two cherubim standing side by side was 30 feet. One wing of the first figure was seven and a half feet long, and it touched the temple wall. The other wing, also seven and a half feet long, touched one of the wings of the second figure. In the same way, the second figure had one wing seven and a half feet long that touched the opposite wall. The other wing, also seven and a half feet long, touched the wing of the first figure. So the wingspan of the two cherubim side by side was 30 feet. They stood on their feet and faced out toward the main room of the temple. Across the entrance of the most holy place, he hung a curtain made of fine linen, decorated with blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and embroidered with figures of cherubim. For the front of the temple, he made two pillars that were 27 feet tall, each topped by a capital, extending upward another seven and a half feet. He made a network of interwoven chains and used them to decorate the tops of the pillars. He also made 100 decorative pomegranates and attached them to the chains, and he set up the two pillars at the entrance of the temple, one to the south of the entrance and the other to the north. He named the one on the south Chikin and one on the north Boaz. Chapter 4 Solomon also made a bronze altar 30 feet long, 30 feet wide, 
and 15 feet high. Then he cast a great round basin, 15 feet across from rim to rim, called the sea. It was seven and a half feet deep and about 45 feet in circumference. It was encircled just below its rim by two rows of figures that resembled oxen. There were about six oxen per foot all the way around, and they were cast as part of the basin. The sea was placed on a base of twelve bronze oxen all facing outward. Three faced north, three faced west, three faced south, and three faced east, and the sea rested on them. The walls of the sea were about three inches thick, and its rim flared out like a cup and resembled a water lily blossom. It could hold about 16,500 gallons of water. He also made ten smaller basins for washing the utensils for the burnt offerings, and he set five on the south side and five on the north, but the priests washed themselves in the sea. He then cast ten gold lampstands according to the specifications that had been given, and he put them in the temple. Five were placed against the south wall, and five were placed against the north wall. He also built ten tables and placed them in the temple, five along the south wall and five along the north wall. Then he molded one hundred gold basins. He then built a courtyard for the priests, and also the large outer courtyard. He made doors for the courtyard entrances and overlaid them with bronze. The great bronze basin called the sea was placed near the southeast corner of the temple. Huram Abbey also made the necessary wash basins, shovels, and bowls. So at least Huram Abbey completed everything King Solomon had assigned him to make for the temple of God. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the two networks of interwoven chains that decorated the capitals, the 400 pomegranates that hung from the chains on the capitals, two rows of pomegranates for each of the chain networks that decorated the capitals on top of the pillars, the water carts holding the basins, the sea and the twelve oxen under it, the ash buckets, the shovels, the meat hooks, and all the related articles. Haram Abbey made all these things of burnished bronze for the temple of the Lord, just as King Solomon had directed. The king had them cast in clay molds in the Jordan Valley between Succoth and Zarethan. Solomon used such great quantities of bronze that its weight could not be determined. Solomon also made all the furnishings for the temple of God, the gold altar, the tables for the bread of the presence, the lampstands and their lamps of solid gold to burn in front of the most holy place as prescribed, the flower decorations, lamps and tongs, all of the purest gold, the lamp snuffers, bowls, dishes, and incense burners, all of solid gold, the doors for the entrances to the most holy place, and the main room of the temple overlaid with gold. Chapter 5 So Solomon finished all his work on the temple of the Lord. Then he brought all the gifts his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the various articles, and he stored them in the treasuries of the temple of God. Solomon then summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of tribes, the leaders of the ancestral families of Israel. They were to bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to the temple from its location in the city of David, also known as Zion. So all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the annual festival of shelters, which is held in early autumn. When all the elders of Israel arrived, the Levites picked up the Ark. The priests and Levites brought up the Ark, along with the special tent and all the sacred items that had been in it. There, before the ark, King Solomon and the entire community of Israel sacrificed so many sheep, goats, and cattle that no one could keep count. Then the priests carried the ark of the Lord's covenant into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and 
placed it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the ark, forming a canopy over the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the temple's main room, the holy place, but not from the outside. They are still there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Mount Sinai, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they left Egypt. Then the priests left the holy place. All the priests who were present had purified themselves, whether or not they were on duty that day. And the Levites, who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Jedathan, and all their sons and brothers, were dressed in fine linen robes and stood at the east side of the altar playing cymbals, lyres, and harps. They were joined by 120 priests who were playing trumpets. The trumpeters and singers performed together in unison to praise and give thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, they raised their voices and praised the Lord with these words. He is good. His faithful love endures forever. And at that moment, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of God. Now, a lot of us been filled with the Holy Ghost, but man, I wish I was there for that. All right, looking back in history, Napoleon Bonaparte proclaimed himself Emperor of France on this day in 1804. Napoleon is both a historical figure and a legend. His life has fired the imaginations of great writers and filmmakers and playwrights. Their works have done much to create the Napoleonic legend. He was one of the greatest military commanders in history, but was also a power-hungry conqueror. Standing at five feet two inches tall, Napoleon was an inspirational and dramatic leader. He could also be cynical and demanding. He was overly ambitious. Napoleon's insatiable ambition ultimately drove him to overextend his power, leading to his downfall. Now Solomon, like Napoleon, was a legend in his time. He too was powerful and overly ambitious. At first, Solomon relied on God for wisdom. However, as his power and prestige grew, so did his pride. Solomon was born to David and Bathsheba after the death of their first son. Although not the oldest living son of David, he was crowned king after his mother and Nathan, the prophet, intervened and secured David's decision to have Solomon succeed him. Solomon is remembered most for his wisdom his building program, and his wealth generated through trade and administrative reorganization. He also wrote 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. Looking deeper, security comes from God alone. Solomon was firmly established in the kingdom because the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. God takes note of those who seek his counsel first. Solomon began his prosperous reign by first going to God. In response, God told him to ask whatever he wanted. Unselfish prayers bring great benefit. Solomon asked for wisdom and knowledge to guide the people rather than for riches, long life, or unbridled power, and God gave it all to him. God cares for those who care for those he loves. Because Solomon wanted to rule God's people wisely, God gave him great wealth, far more than he could imagine. Blessings are not always what we think. While there was nothing wrong with the gifts God gave Solomon, the new king wasn't mature enough to handle prosperity. Let's end with prayer. Help me, Lord, to have the character 
to handle the many blessings you will bring my way. Teach me to pray unselfish prayers, for I know that pleases you. So some months back, I found myself going through quite a bit of spiritual warfare, and in my own self-righteous piety, I was praying to my Abba Father and saying, Lord, I've loved you since I was a small child. I've prayed earnestly since I was a little boy. I feel I know you intimately, and you know me intimately, and I need you. I need guidance. I don't know what direction I'm going in. I need help. I need this. I need that. And without exaggeration, I heard a non-audible voice, and he said, Yes, my son, this is true, but you don't pray for others. Needless to say, I was shocked, and my eyes opened immediately, and just a chill ran down my neck, and uh, realized that, yeah, yeah, since I was a little boy, I have prayed a lot for myself, and uh, had been surrounded by people that I was praying for protection from, or praying for whatever it was from, but man, I I could have been praying for those people, and uh, so... My prayer life has taken a dramatic change about six months ago when I believe God revealed to me through prayer that it's more important to pray for others than to pray for yourself. God's got your back, and it's important for us to have each other's back through prayer, through fellowship, and through uh, friendship, honestly. I want to pray again. Help me, Lord, to have the character to handle the many blessings that you will bring my way. Teach me to pray unselfish prayers, for I know that pleases you. I can tell you firsthand there's power and healing in the name of Jesus. All right, looking forward to being with you tomorrow as we press on through 2 Chronicles, uh, reading chapters 6 and 7.